Just a word about the upcoming series two weeks from now. I got to tell you, I've been studying on this first talk for years. And so I've got to tell you, if there's one message you're going to hear all year long, you want to be here two weekends from this weekend, and guys, especially you. This is a big, I mean, it's going to be great for gals, but especially for guys two weeks from right now. Today we're closing our series called Friends, and um, I, we're going to close it in, in a kind of unusual place. You know, years ago, when I looked at the word friend, I remember noticing that there's a word encompassed in the word, and that's the word in. If you have friendships that last a lifetime, you're really fortunate. But for most of us, we've lived long enough that we can look back on our relationships, and someone who used to be really close to us isn't close to us anymore. And chances are the end of that friendship came about one of three ways. Either you decided that this was not a healthy friendship, your friend was making one kind of choices and you were making a different kind of choice and you just said, we just can't continue this anymore. It didn't mean that you didn't love this person a lot, didn't mean that you didn't pray for this person, didn't mean that you didn't care for them deeply. It's just that it was hard to travel together closely anymore and you had to step in and end the relationship the way it was at least. Or it could be that you just sort of drifted apart or maybe you, you reached an impasse in your relationship where even though you're a good person and that person's a good person, it's just that you had a different point of view about how to go forward and, and if you stayed together, you were going to fight and you just sort of agreed to disagree and that put some distance between you. Perhaps you, you couldn't work together, you couldn't be partners anymore in business or maybe you couldn't do the things together that you used to do because you just got to the place where even though you're good and that person's good, you just had a different way of looking at things and you decided that it's healthier for both of you if you just put some distance in the relationship. Or it could be the third thing happened to you, and that is that somebody you thought was your friend turned against you and betrayed you. That You thought they had your back, but the only thing they were doing was putting a knife in your back. And it broke your heart. And, and for some of us here at New Spring, I, I know, I've heard some of your stories. I know that that person... It gets very tender because that person was your husband or your wife, and you thought that person would always be in your corner, and yet you found out that person was deceiving you. So the friendship ended because you were betrayed. Chances are, I mean, there could be other reasons for the friendship to end, but chances are your friendship ended for one of those th three reasons. Now, here's the thing. Today's talk, I want to just follow a flight plan before I get into it. Number one, today's talk is not going to be fun. I'm not going to enjoy it, and chances are you're not going to walk out of here and say, Mark really inspired me today. That was really an uplifting, motivational message. Because after all, if we're talking about the end of a friendship, it isn't exactly something that we're going to walk out and say, wow, I feel a whole lot better. But I do think it's really important for us to talk about. Here's why. When I talk about friends in this message, I'm not talking about acquaintances or people that are friends on Facebook. I'm talking about those closest people in our life who have the deepest impact and the greatest influence on us. And here's the thing. Those people, either you are encouraged when you're around them or you're discouraged. Those people either infuse you with energy or they drain you. And today what I'm going to challenge us to think about is I'm going to challenge us to think about our relationships. And when a relationship needs to end and we have to step in and end it, or when we both mutually agree that we need to have some distance, or when somebody turns against you, here's the big question. How do we move on? How do we keep moving when friendships end? And what's going to be a challenge also about this message is that we're going to look at all three things, and in a way it's almost like three different sermons. And when it's all over, you may feel like you have sermonic whiplash because we've jumped from one subject to the next to the next, 
But, but please try to work with me because I don't want to spend any more than one weekend talking about friendships ending. So we're going to put all of it into one talk today and we're going to hope that we walk away with something that's really beneficial. Let's talk about the first reason why friendships end, and this is when you have to step in and end a relationship. And that doesn't mean that you, and as I say, it doesn't mean you quit loving this person, doesn't mean you quit praying for this person, it doesn't even mean that you stop doing good things for this person. It's just that this person is no longer going to be in your inner circle. I want to take you to the story of Abraham and Lot. This is all the way back in the book of Genesis, and I'll, each time I want to just give you one line from the scripture that sort of frames why this relationship is coming to an end. And this is from Genesis 13, 9. Take your choice, and we will separate. Take your choice, and we will separate. This is the story of Abraham and Lot. What complicates this a little bit is that they're relatives. And so when we first meet Abraham, God is encountering this person, Abram, and God is calling him out of one life into a life of following him. And that's important to us because many of us have signed on at some moment to follow Jesus Christ. We have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we have said to him what you sang in a song a few moments ago, I will follow you. And the beauty of following Jesus is that means that we're not meandering around. He has a path for us. He has something for us to accomplish. So God comes to Abraham and makes this request of him. Abraham, I want, let's read it. I want you to leave your entire country, your relatives, and your father's family. Now, follow that away. We're going to need that in just a moment. Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. Now, God is saying, if you will leave your country, your relatives, and your father's family, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make you famous. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed because of you or through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed. Now, so far he's following God's instructions, but notice there's a comma here because now Abraham's gonna get creative with God and not follow his instructions. And Lot went with him. What did God tell him? God said, leave your relatives. Now, he's not saying that to you. I just wanna make that real clear today. God is not saying leave your relatives because for some of you, you would wanna take this seriously around Thanksgiving or Christmas. <laughs> But that, there was a reason why God wanted Abraham to leave. Abraham could not be who he needed to be. He could not make the choices God wanted him to make if he was still hanging with people who were making opposite choices. Guys, let me just tell you this. If you follow God, not everybody can go with you on the trip. It doesn't mean they're bad. It doesn't mean you're special. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about them. But if you're going to follow God and go on the trip that God has for you with your, on your life, you can't take everybody with you. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever want to take somebody along on your journey and you knew from the very beginning that the path that God had for you and that person were not a good mix? I have. And usually when we, when we go against what we know best, we'll say something like this. I'll make it work. I'll make it work somehow. Well, anyway, Abraham wanted to take Lot, and Lot wanted to go along. Now, that's the beginning of the story. I want to jump all the way forward to the breakup, because years passed, Lot and Abraham traveling together, living life together, and in the meantime, they've both been blessed. They both have great flocks and herds. They're both very wealthy. Now, there's going to be something that comes up between them. A lot of people think that the breakage between Abraham and Lot came up over their herdsmen who had conflict. But if you listen to Abraham's language and look at Lot's choice, you'll see what it was that really caused the breakup between the two of them. Read with me, please. 
Finally, Abram said to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to come between us or between our herdsmen. After all, we're close relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. Take your choice of any section of the land you want and we will separate. A lot of people think that Abraham and Lot broke up over the fact that their herdsmen were quarreling over grazing rights. You know what, here's the thing. If you ever have to step in and end a relationship that's unhealthy, chances are there'll be some sort of catalyst moment that will trigger that breakup. But the truth be told, long before that incident came up, you knew in your heart and mind that person was making very different choices than you were making. You're making healthy choices, that person's making unhealthy choices. And sooner or later, those, that choice differential is going to come to some sort of head, and you'll have to step in and do something. And that's what happened with Lot. See, here's the thing. If, if it had just been a matter of their herdsmen quarreling, those herdsmen worked for Lot. They worked for Abram. They could have stepped in and stopped it in a heartbeat. But the problem was the quarreling among their herdsmen had to do with the choices that the leaders were making. And somewhere along the line, Lot had decided he did not like the choices Abraham was making, and Abram knew that the choices Lot was making weren't, weren't healthy for him. Here's the thing. Here's the deal. Abraham was choosing to follow God. Lot's choices were about the almighty dollar. And notice that when Abraham called for the breakup, he said, Lot, you make your choice. You choose. And notice Lot's choice revealed the difference between the two men. In Genesis 13, 11, the Bible says, Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley, but the people of this area were extremely wicked and consistently sinned against the Lord. In verse 12, Lot pitched his tent near Sodom. Sodom was the wickedest city in the history of the Old Testament. God eventually would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot went straight there. Let me ask you a question. Would Abraham have done that? Not in a million years. Not in a million years. Not in a thousand lifetimes. Abraham would have never chosen that. Because Sodom was wicked and Abraham had a family. He knew clearly the impact that Sodom could have on his family, which eventually it did have on Lot's family. So please understand, this was not over their herdsmen quarreling. That had nothing really to do with it. Along the line, it became very clear that Abraham's choices were along the line of one set of values and Lot's choices were along the line of another set of values. And guys, here's the deal. Here's what I've learned about friendships. I've learned that I can love somebody very much. And I can want so much for them to make healthy choices, but you can't make somebody make healthy choices. No matter how much you love someone, you can't will them to make healthy choices. Now, why do we get into friendships like this, and why are they so hard to end? Let's tackle both those things pretty quickly. Why do we get into friendships when from the very beginning we know our journey and this person and I are a good mix? Well, if you go back to Abraham and Lot, I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing several things could have happened. Maybe Abraham felt sorry for him. Sometimes we build friendships because we feel sorry for people. And it's a good thing to show compassion, but a friendship is something else. I've, I've seen people who would marry somebody who was a very different person with very different choices, but they feel sorry for them. And then you've got a mother, kind of a mother figure who feels sorry for this bad boy who's always getting into trouble, and they get married, and it's a disaster. Or you get a, a guy with a rescuer complex who's marries somebody who's like always in trouble, and it's like, I'm this knight in shining armor, and I'm going to come in and rescue her, and, you, and that turns out to be a catastrophe. Maybe, maybe Abraham felt sorry for him. 
Or maybe Abraham saw potential in Lot. When Abraham looked at Lot, and this is something that the people who are closest to me have to call me on sometimes. You see, I'm such an optimistic person. I always see the best in everybody. When I look, and that's a good quality. I mean, it's helped me many times, but a lot of times I've looked at people and I haven't seen what is obvious. And those people who are around me have to say, hey, wait a minute, Mark. You know, Mr. Sunshine here is seeing what he wants to see. Maybe that's why Abraham took Lot. You ready for this one? Maybe Abraham knew better, but he didn't want to hurt Lot's feelings. You know, Abraham knew God had called him to go on a different kind of journey. He knew that Lot's choices were all about money. But it was like Lot wanted to go, so Abraham didn't want to say, hey, Lot, I don't think we're a good fit. Maybe he just didn't want to hurt Lot's feelings. Do you know what? When we don't tell people the truth because we don't want to hurt their feelings, the truth of the matter is we are hurting their lives. It is so much better to inadvertently, graciously say the truth if it runs the risk of hurting someone's feelings. It's so much better to do that than to tell someone something that isn't true and then leave them vulnerable. Do you know how Lot will end up? Lot will end up having had his home destroyed in Sodom, his wife will die because she turns and looks back and becomes part of the destruction of Sodom. He will die in a cave, drunk, so drunk that he doesn't even know he's committing incest with his daughters. Abraham would have been far better to have told him the truth and said, Lot, you and I just don't belong on the same journey. Well, the key point is this. There was a day when Abraham had to call it over. Their choices had put them on separate roads and the, path, or the time for denial was past. So why, why do we make friends? Well, maybe those are some of the reasons. Why is it so hard to end a relationship like that? And again, I want to stress, I mean, here's the deal. Abraham still loved Lot. Abraham still prayed for Lot. We find him interceding when God's going to destroy Sodom. Abraham is begging God, if I can find 10 righteous people, will you not destroy it? So it wasn't that he didn't love Lot anymore, and he definitely kept praying for him. And one time when Lot got captured living in Sodom, Abraham went and rescued him. So it's not that Abraham doesn't love him and still invest in his life. It's just they can't travel together anymore. Why is it so hard? to step in and say, we just can't travel together anymore. Well, it could be that we love the person so much or we're afraid of being lonely if she's not there anymore. Here's one that I deal with. You know, you've invested so much in the relationship and you're faced with the reality of lost time and resources. I think sometimes we're afraid to step in and and stop a relationship because if we do, we have to admit that we've invested a lot there and we've lost it. Here's a big one. If you have to step in sometimes like Abraham had to, you come off looking like the bad guy. You know, you'll, you'll hear things like, you call yourself a Christian and you're telling, telling me that you can't hang with me anymore? Or, or, the, or, the, or the one du jour is, you're judging me. Well, it is wrong to judge. Guys, let's be clear about something. There are a lot of judgments God has already made. God has already said there are a lot of things that are wrong and there are things that are right. If I articulate what God has already judged, I'm not judging, I'm just advancing his judgments. If I've got a, if I got a buddy who's sleeping 
with somebody who's not his wife and he's committing adultery and I say to him, hey, you can't cheat on your wife. And he says, oh, you're judging me. I'm saying, no, I didn't judge you. It's like a long time ago. I mean, there was a guy named Moses went up on top of a mountain and God said, you shall not commit adultery. So no, I'm not judging. And a lot of times we don't, we don't want to step in and say something because it's like, well, I don't, want to, I don't want a person to think that I'm a bad person. Or sometimes we won't end an unhealthy relationship because of our past. Maybe we grew up and we didn't have a lot of friendships. And it's like, well, I don't want to lose this one because I never had close friends. Or it could be that you had a lot of people who abandoned you when you were little. And so now it's very hard for you to step in and end something. But Abraham had to. Abraham had to deal with the fact that choices matter. And they couldn't travel on the same road anymore. And what's really interesting about this, the Bible says after Lot had gone. In other words, after Abraham had made this very difficult call. After Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, look as far as you can see in every direction, north, south, east, and west. I'm giving all this land as far as you can see. Now, guys, I'm so cautious about this. Remember last week, I asked you to pray and ask God to help you know whether you should listen to me or dial me out. And I'm going to ask you to do that right now. Because life is complicated, and I want to make sure that I don't want you to come away with the wrong impression about this talk. But I do want to say something to you. There are many of you who are Christ followers, and you're in an unhealthy relationship, and you're with somebody who's making very unhealthy choices. And when you're with that person, that person's choices drag you down. It could very well be the case that God cannot take you where he wants to take you as long as you're in that close relationship with somebody whose choices are taking you in the wrong direction. And that's what happened with Abram. God said to Abraham, after Lot had gone, now I'm going to do in your life what I promised to do in the first place if you did things my way. Now, again, I want you to be very cautious with that because here's the thing. I'm not saying you need to just back off from anybody who's doing anything wrong because we're all doing things that are wrong. I'm just talking about when your choices are healthy and right and you're yoked up with someone who's making very unhealthy choices and it begins to drain you and impact you negatively, there is a time where you and I have to say, it's time to call it a day. Not that you don't love them, not that you don't pray, not that you don't continue to invest. It's just that you can't travel anymore. Well, this next one is really odd. It's from the book of Acts chapter 15, 15 verse 39. The Bible says their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. I almost didn't give you this one today because it is so complicated. But my guess is that at some point in your life, you're going to have somebody that you think very highly of who is a very good person, but you just are in such different pages that if you stay together, you're going to fight. And you'll almost have to say, in order for us to move on, we're going to have to put some space and distance between us. See, in this situation, well, in the last one, we had a weak guy, Lot, and a strong guy, Abraham. In this situation, you got, pardon the expression, you got a couple of Christian rock stars on your hands. I, I, I'm telling you, I'm not fit to tie these guys' Reeboks. I mean, these guys, if there was a Mount Rushmore for Christians in the first century, these two guys would have been there. So a breakup between them, it's not like Abraham and Lot. These guys are superstars. One guy's name is Paul. Do you remember before, if you, if you know the book of Acts, before Paul accepted Christ, he was like the number one enemy of Christianity. He was a young, up-and-coming lawyer. He was making his reputation by persecuting Christians. In fact, he so hated Christians that he was the one who basically signed off on the execution of Stephen. 
And so what he would do as this young up-and-coming lawyer, he would go into cities where Christians might be living, and he would go in with open arrest warrants, and he would, he would arrest men and women. didn't matter. Take them to prison for being Christians. Well, I don't want to get into this. You can read this in the book of Acts, but there was a day when Paul was on the road to Damascus, Syria, with a briefcase full of open arrest warrants, and then God arrested him. God knocked him off his, off his animal. Saul's lying there on the ground, and, and, and he meets Jesus. And he had this, you know, we always talk about Damascus Road conversions. Well, that's what Paul had. He was on the Damascus Road, and he met Jesus. And here's the thing. He goes, listen, 180 degrees in a matter of minutes. He goes from being the greatest hater of Jesus Christ to perhaps the most influential communicator for Jesus Christ in the history of the world. And instantly, he begins to tell everybody how wonderful Jesus is and about his life and how it's been changed. He begins to preach for Jesus. This is very exciting in Damascus. But the only problem is, when Paul goes back to Jerusalem where he's persecuted so many people, and he says, oh, I'm now a Christian, and he goes to church, and he tries to worship with everybody, it would have been like in 2002 if Osama bin Laden said he got saved and showed up at New Spring and wanted to worship with us, we'd have said, well, wait a minute, I'm not really sure about this. And that's what was happening in the church of Jerusalem, because they're thinking, well, you know what? He's just putting on an act. He's trying to scope us out to find out who we are, and he's going to come back and bust us later. So Paul comes in. Nobody gives him a worship photo. Nobody hands him a cup of coffee. When he sits down, he's sitting all by himself, and everybody's looking askance at him. Now, in the church of Jerusalem was a person who had more credibility than just about anybody else. And his name was Barnabas. His very name means Mr. Encouragement. And that is his gift. Barnabas has the gift of making people feel good and about making people feel welcomed. In fact, when when the Christians were being persecuted for their faith, Barnabas went and sold real estate, brought the money to the church so the people would have something to eat. He's got more credibility than anybody. That's just his, I mean, here's the thing. If you walked into church and Barnabas was there, he'd have made a beeline for you to say, oh, I'm so glad you're at New Spring today. Can I, can I show you, can I help you find something? You know, I mean, he would, have, he would have done everything he could to make you feel welcome. That was Barnabas. So here comes Paul in the church at Jerusalem. Nobody will have anything to do with him. Nobody's speaking to him. They're, they're looking at, out, you know, their eye, sideways at Paul. And guess who goes to, to Paul and makes him feel welcome? Barnabas. I mean, you just sort of see it in your mind. Barnabas goes to Paul, puts his arm around his shoulder, says, hey, I've heard about what's happened to you. Would you tell me your story? And Paul says, yeah, I'm so glad I finally have somebody here to talk to. Yeah, I was, on my, I was on my donkey and I was riding to Damascus, and boom, I met Jesus, and he changed my life. And so Barnabas said, welcome, Paul. I'm so glad you could come here to be with our church. And Barnabas put his arm around Paul, took him to everybody else, and said, hey, this guy's for real. And instantly Paul was received because of Barnabas' credibility. And they became best buds. You can sort of see it. Paul has the gift of communicating. He's got this brilliant mind. It's like Paul thinks in straight lines, up, down, right, wrong, black, white. And he's really effective at communicating. Barnabas, on the other hand, just loving people to God. And you can see how that they were the perfect team. By the middle of the book of Acts, there were five pastors on the staff. Two of them were Paul and Barnabas. It was the dream team. And one day God came along while they were worshiping, and God said, This is in Acts 13. I want you to separate Barnabas and Saul for the special work that I've called them to. And in effect, Barnabas and Paul became the first two missionaries 
And God said to the church, I want you to lose two of your pastors because I want them to go outside the church and begin to start churches around the world. And Barnabas and Paul went on a missionary trip. And guys, when you read the book of Acts, it was like electric. It didn't matter if they were going to religious crowds or secular crowds or Jewish crowds or Gentiles. It was like every place they went, the impact of these two guys was concussive. And they started churches, and, and I, I think the world is still influenced today by what these two guys did on this first missionary trip. Barnabas and Paul. It was like peanut butter and jelly. I mean, just Barnabas and Paul. You couldn't imagine one without the other. Nothing would ever break up that relationship, right? Read. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord so we can see how new believers are doing. Barnabas said, that's great. Let's do it. And he wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them and did not continue with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp, they separated. What is this with nephews today? See, Mark was Barnabas' nephew. And evidently when Paul and Barnabas had gone on this first missionary trip, Mark wanted to go. Mark had grown up with a, what we can pick up, Mark's mother was a wealthy widow. You know, Mark had been around in Jesus' ministry. He was a young kid growing up when Jesus had his ministry. And, and so, grown up, kind of a tenderfoot. And so Mark said, I want to go with you guys. But the problem was, tenderfoot Mark flamed out early on and wanted to go home to mama. And straight by the book, Right or wrong, black or white, Paul said, you know what, that kid's a quitter. I don't want him around me anymore. But Barnabas, on the other hand, is the guy that puts his arm around people and tells people about having a second chance. And so when they get ready to go on the second missionary trip, Barnabas said, you know what, I want to take Mark. And Paul said, not in a million years will I take that quitter with me. And Barnabas is saying, but you know what, we believe in the God of second chances. And their argument was so intense that finally, I honestly believe, But there was a point where they said, you know what? We cannot work together anymore. Now, you know what's interesting about this story, and I'll I'll finish this pretty quick. The Bible never says who's right. You know, theologians have banged their head against the wall for years trying to figure out who was right. We never know. God doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say Paul was right or that Barnabas was right. Never says anything. And, and also, it's interesting that John Mark later comes around and becomes extremely effective. And of all things, do you know who John Mark winds up working for for most of his life? He's working for Paul. In the last letter Paul wrote, Paul said, bring Mark. I need Mark. So who was it who had the greatest impact on Mark turning around? Was it Paul confronting him? Was it Barnabas offering him a second chance? Chances are it was neither. Seems to be Peter. And I imagine in my mind how that worked because after all, can you imagine what a jerk Mark looked like to the rest of the church? This kid broke up the dream team. This kid broke up Paul and Barnabas. I mean, after all, now nobody wants to worship with Mark. Who better than Peter to come along and put his arm around Mark and say, hey, Mark, I know what it's like to embarrass everybody. I I was the one who denied Jesus, and nobody wanted anything to do with me. But you know what? That night on the beach when Jesus came out there and gave me another chance, he asked me one thing. Do you love me, Mark? Do you love Jesus? Yes, I do. Well, Peter is saying, Mark, God can give you a second chance, and Mark gets back in the game. But the one thing that doesn't change is as far as we can tell, Paul and Barnabas never worked together again. What do we learn from that? 
Let, let me take a crack at it. There are issues that are so small, you compromise them for a friendship. But I don't believe that Paul and Barnabas were, these were not men of frail mind or frail spirituality. I believe in the mind of Paul, this was an issue so big that if he gave in on it, he wouldn't be Paul anymore. And I believe Barnabas to him, this was an issue so big that if he gave in on it, he wouldn't be Barnabas anymore. The odd irony of this is I think their impasse came about because of their spiritual gifts. And guys, let me just tell you this. Sometimes, and I've had this happen as pastor of this church. I've had this happen with other pastor friends. Sometimes it's gonna, you're going to be a good person. That person's a good person. You love him. He loves you. You love her. She loves you. You're, you respect her. She respects you. It's just that you're at an impasse, and you're saying, you know what? If we try to make this a team, we're going to fight all the time. Life is short, eternity is long, God will straighten us all out when we get to heaven. You roll your way, I'll roll my way, let's just keep rolling for God. By the way, that's what happened. Because you can read in Acts 15, 39, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and went to Syria. You've got two missionary teams now. Sometimes that happens. And you know what? Here's the thing, guys. It's not the end of the world. The mistake is to keep putting pressure on the relationship when all you do is create conflict. And now the third thing, and we'll close. We've talked about when you need to end the friendship. We've talked about a mutual thing where you're at an impasse. And now the third one. The line from 2 Samuel chapter 15, Ahithophel is among the conspirators. This one is about when somebody knifes you in the back. For the third time in this series, we're going to appeal to the life of David. The only thing is, week one was about David and Jonathan when David was a young man. Then last week, we were talking about difficult people. It was, it was um, um, uh, Nabal and, and Abigail. Both of those things happened when David was young, before he was king. This story happens when David is about my age. I'm guessing he was in his mid-50s about this time. David was an extraordinary king. He he was, he was much beloved by his people. He had flaws. He made some mistakes, did some things wrong. But by and large, he was an extraordinary leader. But one of the sad things about David when I read his life is he seems to be a failure as a dad. Isn't it something sometimes that men and women can be very successful in life and business but not be successful as a parent? And David, great man that he was, seemed to be a disaster as a dad, especially with his sons. Now, the reason why David, I think, was a disaster as a dad was he was very permissive. He, he pretty much let his kids do anything they wanted to do, and he would never confront them even if they were doing wrong. And David seems to have had a favorite son. His favorite son seems to be Absalom. Absalom was extremely attractive. I mean, you know, from what I can pick up from the, from the scriptures, Absalom seems to be the guy, ladies, if you remember this, those of you who were reading romance novels a few years ago, because I used to see them on the shelves at the supermarket stuff, Absalom's kind of like the picture of the guy on the cover of the romance novel. You know, not just handsome, but kind of pretty, you know? <laughs> Long hair, you know. And, and, and flowing hair. I mean, he was the kind of person that, you know, he was a metrosexual before we knew what that was. 
and very proud of himself. And, and just doing, he was a total screw up, but David would never do anything about him. And, and when David was middle aged, Absalom decided one day things would be so much better if he were king and not his dad. And instead of being coached up by his dad and waiting for the time for him to be king, Absalom decided he would just take over the kingdom. And he did it in the most nefarious kind of way. When you're a leader, as you know, every once in a while you're going to make a decision that people aren't going to like. So Absalom had a key way of going to leaders, to people rather, that David had not decided things their way. And he kissed up to those people and said, oh, if only I were king. And the next thing you know, he's got enough people to make an insurrection. David is faced with a civil war. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think, and this is more than you need to know because we're out of time nearly, but, but personally, I don't think David really worried about this. He got his family secure, and he got his army with him, and David willingly left Jerusalem. But the reason why I think he left is I think he thought this will peter out in no time. Absalom is a screw-up. It won't take him very many days for this thing to blow up, and this way we won't fight and get into a big bloody war, and we'll just leave town and wait for it to calm down. But when David was leaving town, he got words that both broke his heart and scared him to death because David's general came to him and said, Sir, I hate to tell you this, but Ahithophel is among the conspirators. Now, Ahithophel had been David's closest friend. And on top of that, Ahithophel had been David's closest advisor. It was like when David had a cabinet meeting and all the other cabinet members left, Ahithophel would stay behind because his advice was so good and so strategic. I mean, the Bible says the advice Ahithophel gave was like the one who inquires of God. In other words, he was so good. It was like if you ask Ahithophel what to do, it was almost as good as asking God what to do. So now... Not only was David dealing with the heartbreak of his closest friend turning against him, David was dealing with the real and you know, clear and present danger that now Absalom was dangerous because on his own he was a jerk, but with Ahithophel's advice, suddenly he becomes very dangerous. David would write in Psalm 41, even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food, has turned against me. Jesus would quote that when Judas betrayed him. He would quote that same statement. But can you identify with that? Has that ever happened to you? Even my best friend, the one I trusted completely. I mean, David indicates that there weren't many people on this list. He indicates that maybe there was only one. This is the guy, the one person I trusted completely. He's turned against me. Man, it's a complicated story, and maybe someday I'll talk about how it happened. By the way, just for your own edification. You need to know that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather, but we'll save that for another day. How do you deal with it, though, when somebody turns against you? Guys, I don't have time to preach this message, so here's what I want to get you to do. There is a psalm. Now, you know the psalms are the songbook of the Bible. There's 150 psalms. Most of them are written by David. There is a psalm that is my favorite. I love the 23rd psalm. It's very precious to me, but it's not my favorite. My favorite psalm is Psalm 3. And I have loved it all my life, especially when someone turns against me. Because you see, Psalm 3 was written the evening that David heard that Ahithophel had turned against him. Now, in this psalm, David makes several statements that to me tell us how to get through and move on 
when somebody you love turns against you. Listen to the language. It's only, only six verses. Oh, Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are saying God will never rescue him. Here we go, number one. But you, oh, Lord, are a shield for me. Now, guys, I don't know if you've ever been through this. Maybe you've never had somebody that you really believed in turn against you. But let me just tell you this. When and if it happens, here's what you're going to feel like. You're going to feel like your chest cavity is opened up and your rib cage is opened up and your heart is totally exposed. You will never feel as vulnerable as you will feel at the moment when somebody you love and trusted turns against you. It will feel like anybody can take shots at you. And nothing can stop it. But David said, God, you're my shield. My best friend, the one I trusted more than anybody else completely, has turned against me. But God, you're the one who protects me. I can't protect myself right now. But you protect me. And then he said, number one, number two, you're the one who holds my head high, or some translations will say the lifter of my head. And this is really important because when somebody turns against you that you love very much, you will think, do I have a future anymore? Maybe life's not worth living. Maybe it's not worth going on. And when your heart is broken, it's just natural. It's a natural physical motion for your head just to sink into your chest. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been like this? And I have. I know what this feels like. Have you, ever, have you ever been so low that your head just sinks down into your chest and somebody you love very much comes and in a very tender move, movement just puts their hand under your chin and lifts your head up? You know, that's, a, that's an interesting physical motion because what that's saying is there's something to look at. There's a future to look at. That, that is a very powerful physical touch to lift someone's head up. And David is saying, God, right now my head is in my chest. My son has rebelled against me. My best friend has defected. But you are the one who protects my heart, and you are the one who lifts up my head and says, don't forget, David, there's a future. And by the way, even if you're a guy, it's okay to cry, because in verse 4 he said, I cried to the Lord. In verse 5, here's a big one. I laid down and slept. If you've ever had, I don't know if anybody else is here. Have you ever had anybody really turn against you? And, and, you, and it's like your mind just keeps playing the tape. You can't sleep. You try to sleep at night. It's like, well, I can't, I can't believe this person did this to me. I did this for her and did that for her. And I was there for her. And, and I did this for him. And, 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 and whenever this guy was in trouble, I mean, I, I did all these things for him. And now he's saying this and doing this. And it's like the loop just keeps playing and you can't sleep. And the problem is at that point you start getting physically weak. And David said, it's not going to do any good for me to stay up and replay all this stuff with Ahithophel. God, if you're in charge, I'm going to sleep. And then verse 6. I'm not afraid. Well, guys, if you do have someone who abandons you, remember this. There is a future. And if you have God in your life, and I pray that you do, if you have God in your life, the wonderful thing about God, and I can't think of any better way for us to close the friend series than to close with this statement. God is the friend who will never abandon you. He is the friend who will never knife you in the back. He is the friend who will never leave you. David would write later on, even if my father and mother abandoned me, the Lord will hold me close. And some of you know what that's like. Your husband abandoned you, but the Lord held you close. Your wife walked out, but the Lord held you close. God has said, Hebrews 13, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. I just want to take a moment as I close out the series here, and I'm sorry we're in overtime just a little bit, but we'll, we'll finish this in just a moment. I, I don't think I can finish this series without asking you this question. 
Have you ever really invited Jesus to come into your life and to be your best friend? The Bible has said this. We have all kinds of brokenness and sin and dysfunction in our lives. I do. And there's no way that we can stop doing everything that's wrong and be perfect. And even if we could, what would we do about our past record? But the Bible tells us that God loved you so much that he put his son Jesus on a cross. And the blood that Jesus gave when he gave his life became a currency that paid for our sins. And three days later, he walked out of the grave under his own power, proving that he's God. Now, it's strange to me because there are all kinds of things that God could say about how to have a relationship with him. But he doesn't ask us to give money or to perform some kind of service. He just asks us to put confidence in his son, Jesus. And the scripture makes it very clear in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm going to pray a prayer that calls on Jesus. And if you'd like to invite him into your life, no better way to close out the friend series than doing this. Would you pray with me, please? I'm going to pray this prayer, and if you mean it in your heart, that's the thing that matters. It's not the words. It's what you mean. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you died for my sin. I believe you arose from the grave. I ask you in to be the friend who will never leave me. I receive you as Savior and King. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, I know you have so many questions. I, and, and I have a packet here if you just prayed that prayer that's a gift. It's got a little book in it and a DVD and a coupon for a new Bible. If you just prayed to receive Christ, please come back to guest services. All you got to do is say, I pray with Mark. They'll give you this. Guys, thank you so much for being here today. Two weekends from right now, we start the series, Strange But True. Biggest series I've ever done. Luis, bring us home.